welcome to this week of the Caro podcast. I hope you're all having a really good week and to those going to Glastonbury, have fun. My dad used to say to me, be good and if you can't be good, be careful. So I feel like that's an appropriate thing to say for this occasion. I would just like to say in advance that there is a bit of sweary language at one stage of this episode and I did have a cold when we met our guest this week. So apologies for sounding like I was containing my coughing at times. So we talked to Camilla Wordy in today's episode. Camilla is a stylist whose compositions have so much care and attention that I've sometimes wondered whether they're actually alive. She has wonderful way of finding a balance between activity within the frame whilst also being minimal. She's really good at being playful and serious at the same time and she has such precision with colour, form and texture that you question whether you're looking at a styled installation or maybe a piece of art. I am a huge admirer of Camilla's work and I've often referenced her aesthetic as a benchmark for my own pursuits. In today's episode we talk about all things from conviction, function versus aesthetic challenging the perception of the everyday to soy sauce and the weight of a plate. Welcome to the podcast, Camilla. I'd love to hear a bit about your journey up to now. How did you get into styling? I suppose not much has changed since I was a child. Um, I did always style at home in a way in my bedroom. I was always moving things around, um, collecting things, rearranging things. I would spend Probably hours when another child be watching TV or playing on their Game Boy, I would just lock my door and just move things around for a very long time, which is quite strange. But it, I guess it came from my mum was also a jeweller, mm-hmm. so she was always working at home and being creative was very much part of our childhood in quite a controlled way, interestingly. She, mm. She's very neat and tidy and structured. So it wasn't, it, well, there wasn't much free play, mm. um, but there definitely was allocated time to be creative. And that almost fits really nicely with how I work. It's an odd, I guess, yeah, being, being very controlled in the way I style. It happens in times of my life when I'm meant to be either on a job or doing something. But other than that, I'm quite chaotic. Mm-hmm. And I guess in my adult life, it's, I started doing a foundation course at Chelsea College of Art, then went on to Edinburgh to do textile design um, and did some time away in Copenhagen. Um, and that was part of your university degree? That was part degree. of my, yeah. All in printed textiles, so not embroidery, not um, tapestry or wool or any of that. It was all printed. But even then, I was very much pushing the boundaries with the way you use fabric or the way... I guess everyday materials were interpreted and I think you know I I remember putting ready break through a heat press and um you know embroidering rice onto tablecloths and amazing was that something your degree tutors encouraged um I think they thought I was a bit mad and I wasn't really following the line and I think that they found it frustrating because I even in those days when a brief was presented to me, I knew exactly what I would deliver in two months' time. And I'd almost have to make up like a whole three sketchbooks of absolute crap to make it make sense. Yeah. Um, it's go back. So go sort back. of retrospective. Yeah, I would work backwards because I would see the vision. And that happens now with clients. Like someone, if someone presents me 
with a brief, I know exactly without doing anything what it's going to look like. So it's a similar way of working. But yeah, I guess they, they were curious by what I was doing, but they also allowed it to happen. And I think as a result, they maybe were interested by the fact that I challenged the course in a very different way and brought in a different element. I don't think food was ever... I mean, nowadays, a lot of people use natural dyes and, you know, dye with food and things, but not so much like trying to... I don't know, create an apple peel out of a textile or, you know, Mm. thinking about it in a different way. And when you reflect back at that time, do you recognise that you were different to the other students and your approach? Yeah, definitely. And how, what was the response from your peers? I think again, they all thought I was quite strange. Um, (laughs) Yeah, I think, I think I definitely wasn't following the line, but I don't know, even when it came to creating final pieces or I I wouldn't go to the art shop and buy a bit of MDF and make a box. I would go to a car boot sale, go to a charity shop, find an old sewing box that would turn into the whole, I guess the way I've worked and collected things has never, hasn't changed for 15 years. Mm. Um, And yeah, but it, it was always being curious, playing with the everyday, trying to think of different ways to do things. Mm. And also it always remained minimal and it always remained humorous in a way. There was always something funny that was happening. And I look back to my final piece um, at Edinburgh College of Art was actually almost a small version of an installation I created in Japan six years ago. It's like, it's not, yeah, I guess it's kind of followed the same path the whole Mm. way through. Did your experimental nature ever feel uncomfortable within your degree or were you strong in your purpose no this is how I want it to I was be. very sure yeah I've always been quite decisive like when I know I'm there I'm there mm-hmm. and yeah I think it often took some encouragement I think I got stuck quite easily and at the moments when I got stuck my tutors would encourage me to go back and work on it and work on it and go and go in a circle until I'd refound the reason I was doing something but I felt that was so unnecessary to do because I knew if I'd made the decision, I'd made the decision. I think it maybe was more challenging in the sense of how to, you know, so much of it is a a box ticking exercise and trying to explain why I was doing something or what I was trying to challenge or what, how I was answering that question in a different way to others to, for it to make sense to other people because it made complete sense in my head why, why I was doing it differently or why I felt that that was going to be a textile, but it might not last forever or it might be part of an eating experience or it might be part of a dining experience, but then it's gone. And I'm not just sort of reeling off floral designs that are going to be turned into a dress. You know, I think that that was challenging for them, but I almost like, I think they were quite responsive to the fact that they hadn't seen it before and they liked working with someone new in a, in mm, a different way. I pushing guess. the boundaries. Yeah. Um, okay, so your Danish background came into play. When how, how did that opportunity to go to Denmark come about uh, at the university? The Erasmus scheme, which I don't even know if it exists anymore because of Brexit. But and I just yeah, I've always been someone who's been up for going somewhere else, doing something different. And there was yeah, no question I was going to go. And it, it, I guess it was less inspirational in terms of the course and more just being around. Scandinavian designers the way that Scandinavians live um how beautifully things are designed but also how functional they are and questioning the function versus aesthetic um 
And maybe it was a more expressive part of my creative journey. I remember doing a lot of hand embroidery there. And I remember probably one of the only pieces I really did there was actually, I think I was having a really rubbish day and I, I did an embroidery of all these different threads on top of each other, kind of expressing what was in my mind. And at the bottom, I just wrote a really shit Monday. Mm. And it's funny now looking back, like I'd love to find those in a box and see... Yeah, well, I, I guess nowadays you'd buy something like that in a you shop, would, yeah. you? and you'd be like, oh, God, I'm so expressive with my feelings. Or, yeah. um, <laughs> well, and there's the people doing ceramics with things like fuck you exactly. on. Or, exactly. You can imagine that I'm having a shit Monday on a plate. Yeah. Okay, so Denmark, and then what happened when, so you went, you finished your degree, and then what happened? How did your career start? I suppose I was always interested in food, um... I was a chef for a little bit and then kind of had this patch in between knowing I was probably going to go to London and start working and what was I going to do and a friend said well if we could be paying high rent in London why don't we pay high rent somewhere else and intern somewhere else and so we picked Japan I set myself four challenges of taking on a freelance job doing an exhibition doing an internship and I can't remember what the last one was, but I was reviewing restaurants out there for a bit, which was quite <laughs> extraordinary. Um, basically a great way to get free food. And I, I refused to leave Japan until those things had happened. But I guess what came out of that whole trip was doing two solo exhibitions in a gallery in in Tokyo and having an extraordinary experience meeting the um, curator of this gallery. And it was four stories high, very small building um in Shinjuku which is a mm-hmm. nutty part of Tokyo um that's where all the high fashion is as exactly well, isn't it? yeah exactly and it was an incredible white building with a glass the top floor was glass and he this lovely guy I think thought that I was some really professional <laughs> wonderful artist from London uh, who was on the hunt for a gallery space and all I really wanted was a free gallery space and he said, right, well, what are your ideas? And I, I literally thought in about five seconds, what can I offer him? And I said, I'm going to fill one room with rice and one room with soy sauce. <laughs> How did you come up with that? Had it been I floating around it, in it your mind? It had been mind? floating around in my mind, this idea of, um, I guess, again, chan- chal- uh, challenging the use of everyday items. And rice and soy sauce are the top two ingredients that are used and bought and sold in Japan. So how can I make something out of those? Mm. And he just thought this was the most conceptual, wonderful, extraordinary idea. So I ran with it. And we sat with Google Translate, pints of beers, uh, packets of uh, Japanese cigarettes. And uh, through Google Translate, I tried to sum up what my exhibition was going to be and how it was going to happen. It feels like a really good premise for a film. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) yeah. And I think once he'd said yes to this, I just thought how am I going to find like 20 kilos of rice? I've never lived in Japan before. I don't speak Japanese. How am I going to fill a room with soy sauce? Of which then I realized you had to have ID to buy soy sauce. What? The alcohol content, I think if you're buying too much, there's something oh, of that's... Course. Um, and that was that, that the soy sauce one was actually in a basement, which then meant I kind of gassed everybody out who came in because it was so strong and so <laughs> overpowering. Um, and when you say soy sauce, what, bottled or in the no, little sachets was, or I, just I went, liquid? <laughs> yeah, I went to the, uh, I guess, 
culinary district of Tokyo. Mm-hmm. Um, where the mar- like big markets. Well, it's like where the equivalent of millions of Nisbets, you know that shop, Nisbet, the catering shop. Anyway, it's like a big catering shop. <laughs> I can't say I do, actually. Maybe I should. Um, roads and roads of catering shops, basically, where re- Japanese restaurants would go and buy a thousand chopsticks, a thousand bowls, a thousand napkins, whatever. And I just walked down these streets, went into every shop until I found the cheapest, nicest looking plastic soy sauce tray and um, filled 1,549, I think it was, um, and lined them all up by eye in a grid on a concrete floor in this white space. So it's very um, eye way way. Yeah. And it, it was, it was, I guess the first person who came in um, was a sort of middle-aged Japanese guy in a suit who burst into tears and said how nostalgic it felt because oh, it wow. smelled like his home. <gasps> and when his mother was cooking and the whole flat filled with soy, the smell of soy sauce. How incredible. That must have felt yeah. amazing. It, it, it did because I didn't really know what to expect from these people. And I also couldn't communicate with anybody who yes. came. And I think the extraordinary thing about exhibiting in not your own country, everyone who turns up turns up because they want to, not because mm. they have to. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know a little flyer that I printed out on the local printers was you know stuck on pillars and it was a very different way of advertising and marketing something as to what you would do here um, and how, before we move on how about the rice how is the rice displayed the rice I literally filled a room I think it was about a foot deep in rice okay um, it was on the top floor so people came up onto basically the roof rooftop of this gallery into this glass box and took their shoes off, sanitised their feet because Japanese are very conscious of cleanliness and ensuring, like, I wanted to make sure that this rice also stayed clean enough that we could donate it after. Um, and then people walked in it and the whole thing was, you know, you eat this three times a day for breakfast, lunch and dinner, feel it with your skin, like, have a have a relationship with it that's other than it just being eaten. And again, you know, you had kids running in, running in and chucking it in the air and playing. You had other people making... And it was dry, right? It was dry, yeah. Throwing it and then sticking all over your body and face. And almost like creating Zen gardens in a way, people drawing in it, raking in it, moving in it. Um, And it was very, some people it was a very fun experimental place to be. For others, it was a very calming place to be, depending on the time of night, day you went. And um, yeah, it was was an amazing thing to have done. But then I came back to London and thought, I can't do this here. I'm not going to be able to pay... London rent by being an installation artist. How do I get a gallery? How do I? So I guess that was the start of it becoming smaller and becoming more small sets, which became and you know, commercial and commercial mm. and being able to work for brands and business and companies and making small sets. And okay. that's how it sort of started. You have a real eclectic live portfolio from Bias Editions, Netta Porter, Waitrose, uh, Pantechnicon. How do your clients come across you? Um, I guess they used to find me through an agent. I had an agent at the beginning um, for a few years. And that was a great way of, I guess, setting up shop, feeling like I had some people behind me to support me in getting those big jobs and getting going. I currently don't have an agent and actually they do corner you in a way and I think very much my people come to me primarily for my style, my look, my aesthetic and 
that can be applied to anything. And so almost not being restricted to a, a specific crowd is much more freeing. Mm. Um, because you found yourself working a lot with food, didn't you? And yeah. And people may be approaching you as a food stylist. Exactly. And food stylists are incredibly talented individuals who are trained chefs and home economists and you know, what they do is almost a science. And I think there was a confusion between doing those kind of jobs when actually I was more treating food always as a material. And mm. it goes back to not being that far off being university in Edinburgh. You know, it, it remained as a as a, a subject, an object, a, a thing to look at rather than the edible side of it. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I guess it's evolved. And now it, work comes from photographers the brand or the company or the product who has come across my work somewhere else and really likes it it's yeah word of mouth a Mm. mixture there's a sense of precision to your work how do you feel about accuracy versus chance um interesting question I think I would like to say I'm able to control everything that happens in a set Mm -hmm. um or I like to try and control everything that happens I think especially if I've come up with the concepts and I've sourced the props and chosen the photographer, I can kind of see how that's... A certain amount I can see how it's going to go, but I always say to a client, allow half the day to be playtime. You can't... If we planned every shot, there's very little space for it just to happen naturally. So I think the, the precision, I guess, the chance versus precision, it's, it's tricky because... Yeah, I, a lot of it is controlled to a point and then I want to let the props see, see what they want to do or see what works on set or see what works in camera. Mm. But also sometimes something falls or I walk out the room to go to the loo or I go and whatever and suddenly the photographer decides to move something because they feel brave. They're like, oh, maybe I'll try and put it here. <laughs> and I come back and I, I can see it's it, it's working or I can very quickly see it's not working mm. and that little pine nut that was balancing on the end of a fork or whatever needs to be returned to there and super glued and firmly stay <laughs> or it's fine that it's fallen off and let's add some more and make it a bit more relaxed. But I think when it comes to the, the getting to the right point, it's it, you, I know when I've got there, it's almost you hit like a balance a form of like equilibrium it's like suddenly there's a moment mm. and the shot is complete and and I think when it's a commercial client that doesn't come soon enough and sometimes I have to stop and just move on um but if I'm able to be as free as possible I will wait and wait and wait until that comes um and I will always check back in at the shots we've taken and what is to come to ensure that there's a balance within the series so I'm really overly conscious about making the whole team stop and say, we've actually ended up with seven portraits and one landscape, or there's three blue backgrounds and only one green, or there's everything is very heavily weighted on the left, we need to balance it to the right. And looking at overall as like a, a set. Yeah, how they all work together. Mm. The scenes you've created involving food often feel like they have an erotic or kind of sexy feel to them. When I look at them, the sumptuous colours, the velvets, the heels, the way hands are positioned up against the stem of a glass or how the fabric seems to be gliding over a melon or maybe the light shines on the fur of a peach. 
I really love this interpretation of food. How intentional is this? Um, you could say very intentional when I've gone to 45 corner stores to find the perfect apple. Um, but also, I, yeah, I guess a lot of it is very intentional. I think, I think it's just part of getting to that point that I was just saying. And it's partly ensuring that the props themselves all work together. You know, if, if there needs to be a pen in the shot, is that a very clean, simple pen? Is it a very obvious big biro? Is it a finding the perfect prop? whether that's food, objects, material, and then the tone of the colors of those things, I think that they need to all marry together. And I always try and gather everything before the shoot to make sure that all those things will pair up and kind of work tone on tone. And and then I guess the textures, you know, never putting wood on wood, never putting something shining on top of I don't know yeah it's a real again finding that balance to make sure that there's not too much of a warm color or too many shiny things or too and naturally there's always things that photograph better like we always know a peach is going to be beautiful because of its texture often things that are matte and have I don't know shiny things are really hard to work with so yeah it is very intentional but also maybe the way that they come together hasn't been planned, but I know looking at all the items before that they're all going to work together regardless. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Mm, Absolutely. I was thinking about, you know, a pen, for example, and say it's a gold pen, like a bullet pen. Mm. You must have a lot of sort of information about how the photographer might photograph that because what makes that pen sexy is how it's shot, you know, how the light bounces off that metal. So you know how that's going to be photographed essentially as well yeah I think yeah and it's it's always keeping it it comes down also to the amount of objects in that picture because suddenly it become almost overwhelming and in a way I guess not sophisticated and that's the whole that feeling you're talking about is also sophistication you mm-hmm. know it's it's a similar way to someone dresses or it, it's it's finding that little and it's not having too much and not having too little and that pen being in the right place mm. and it's not feeling like it's right in the camera and it's set back but it's still coming out and millimeters or it's such a yeah the precision I guess comes back to how making sure it's all just right and then it it makes that feeling you know you've articulated that so well because sometimes I I have been asked well what makes that a good scene or whatever but I find it very hard to sort of articulate the balance I I can say Mm. well it's just the balance of what's in the frame yeah and I think if I was presented with a series of like any objects there would be a way to place them that it would just work but it's so down to the choice of object too because it's not and the photographer and the light and because even if you had a whole lot of lovely things and they were photographed badly on a bad table it's not going to work you know so that's when the whole collaborative feel is so important Mm -hmm. um I mean recently I did this project for the Rosewood Hotel in London they host an art tea and um I was asked to create five installations that represent David Hockney's new exhibition at the Lightroom. 
And so I had to somehow sum up Hockney, Hockney's work in these small sets in a tea room that's quite elaborate. And again, finding the exact right shade of pink and the, the type, exact red tie he wore and the, the right shape of glasses, all those choices made the sets work. If they were slightly wrong, I, you just wouldn't quite get there. I don't, it's mm. very the hard to explain. But that you must have to do. Yeah. And just all of it together is what makes the the perfect balance, you mm. know, so it's getting to that point. But that's part of the fun. Did that feel quite a different exhibition for what you've been doing recently? Yeah, it felt like a very... Um, it was really nice to study someone for mm. for a long time and to really connect with things that keep coming up in his work and... Um, and the colours that he chooses and the tones of those colours and how they keep coming up in the same piece, you know, different pieces of work, the same colour comes up. And it was different, but it was incredibly, it was a very free job. It was a very nice way to, um, yeah, be free with materials and be, and not create something just for a photograph and for it to be a permanent thing for a few months. And for know. people to interact with it yeah, as well. Yeah, exactly. Did you, were you in the room when people were looking round it or did you just see it um, when you were installing it and then leave? Yeah, I went back and had tea and that just felt quite strange and I mm. wanted to quickly leave again. You must feel like you know Hockney a lot better now. Yeah, for sure. I'm interviewing you as a part of a panel about storytelling soon. We've discussed the idea of a visual personality. How do you approach storytelling in your work? Um... I think it depends on the project. If it's for a brand um, or a product, I always want, if they ask me to come up with the concept, I try to really get an understanding of who they are, why they've set up this company, who are they trying to get the product to, what feeling are they trying to evoke. And I think all of that then creates the... The, the three words I always use is it needs to be minimal, sophisticated and have an edge. And that research and that discussion with them is what creates the edge. They've come to me because they want something that's minimal and sophisticated. But the edge is almost what, what makes them different from everybody else. And that's how I think you tell their story. Mm-hmm. And I always say if we were to remove everything out of the picture, do you know it's theirs? And that is also their story because it's the bit that sets them apart from everybody else. Which of your self-initiated projects best represents your work at the moment, do you think? Good question. I think always with personal projects, I'm trying to fill a gap that maybe hasn't necessarily been filled in my portfolio. Work with an object or a concept that I haven't thought of yet. But ultimately, they all come back to everyday items. And, And actually, that started from when I was at the beginning of my styling career doing test shoots you wanted them to be as cheap as possible and to cost to be at a bare minimum and almost using like paper cups or whatever you could find that was really cheap in a supermarket was a really good thing to use as a prop but in lockdown I did this shoot called Our Every Day and it really summed that feeling up of actually we couldn't get to the shops I wanted to carry on working and producing new content 
And so I teamed up with a photographer and I said, let's find everything in our house that we're looking at every day whilst we're locked in these houses that's white. And, and that created a series. And I think it's, it's just trying to make people think of the things that we're around all the time in a different way. And similarly to that, there's another job which I did called Spicy Shades, um, which it was an, another mad idea of mine. But, you know, we all have lampshades in our house. We all have a spice cupboard. Um, and why aren't lampshades, like, textured? Why don't they have a feeling? Why don't they do anything more than just, you know, there's so many beautiful fabric lampshades out and about. But so I just rolled loads of lampshades and spices. And almost that was another, I guess... It really, it was a very exciting project because it was a, a different, a, something I'd never seen before, something to explore in a new way mm. and to, you know, everyone said to me, why don't you keep the lampshades? And I thought, I don't really want a cumin smelling lampshade <laughs> in the corner of my room forever. Can I just say, um, I love how you use the titles. I think the words you use to title your project, it's they're always just so, so hard brilliant. to do. It's a very hard... Do you, so you put a lot of time into that. You don't have a copywriter, sort of. No, 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 no. How I wish to have a copywriter. <laughs> no, yeah, I guess they they come from what, why the concept has come about, and that kind of creates the the title in a way. Mm. But I'm currently working on a new personal project, which is really exciting that I'm hoping to exhibit in 2024, where I'm building basically portraits of people but using the foods that they love oh wow so it's a it's almost like a bespoke still life of yep. that person's favorite foods and could they be perishable then these is it going to be a perishable exhibition where well no because they're being photographed so there'll oh, okay. be there'll be photographs but um it, it's it's quite interesting at the moment because someone will pick maybe like hula hoops as one of their top 10 ingredients and another person picks a pig's head and another person but it's being handed 10 food items that I haven't chosen myself that don't necessarily work together in terms of colour, texture, shape, yeah. scale. So and that's quite uncomfortable. It is you. uncomfortable, yeah. but that uncomfortability is a really nice challenge and that's something that I always try to push when I'm doing personal work. And also I'm getting a different photographer to photograph each person, not the person themselves, but the, the still life. So it's all they're all being styled by me, but they're all maybe going to be interpreted in a different way by them. Mm. It's real, yeah. I I think from the beginning of my styling, I guess I've done personal projects. I'd say at least every other month, because you're constantly learning, you're constantly working with new photographers, working, building new relationships, new ba new boundaries, new challenges, new ingredients, new props. It's like a really. It's if I didn't do that, I wouldn't mm. carry on doing what I do because we don't all get everything we need out of paid clients, right? Do you ever find yourself let, letting that slip? Or how do you sort of make sure that you factor that into your life? You know, because I can imagine the paid work's coming in and you're like, oh, I can't turn down that You've job. You've just got to make time for it. Mm -hmm. And I'm quite think, strict with that. Yeah, I am strict with it. And I also think I'm lucky enough that I have great people approaching me saying they really would love to work with me. And as soon as they, they do that, rather than saying, yeah, I'd love to work with you too. Let's wait for something to come up. I say, right, let's have a call next week. Um is there something you really want to add to your portfolio? Or I say, this is a concept I've currently got. Do you like the sound of it? Do you want to shoot it? Mm. We book in a date, strike while the iron's hot and shoot it. 
So what would be your dream self-initiated work to work on? If I was to do anything again, I'd go back to the next exhibition of a similar vein of the one I did in Japan. The, the long-term plan is to go back to being an installation artist mm-hmm. and going to different countries and basically doing an installation of their most used food. And how important is the audience's reaction? Is I mean, not that you're necessarily wanting them to react in a sort of planned way, but it being installation that people visit, is that an integral part of why you want to do that? No, I think maybe I haven't got that part of the art side artist I don't know I Mm. I think I'm very open to people interpreting it in any which way and I think it's more about people being curious and interacting with something that they wouldn't normally interact with Mm. I think even when that's probably what the self-initiated work does is it, it I want people to be curious and for brands like that finding that brand personality that thing that no one else has got for the audience to be curious as to why they've done that and to why they've chosen for that to be in their set and to represent their brand. You know, it's, it's, I like, I like people sort of thinking something silly or spotting something that they didn't notice or. Mm. So you do like that emotive response, you know, the man in Japan that started crying or maybe someone might look at something and burst out laughing. But with no expectations, maybe that's more of it. There's zero expectations. And for, one person to think it's a beautiful image or set or installation and for another person to think it it's hard because for a brand it always has to re- result in sales for them too and mm. that's a really fine line because if you hide an object a little bit further back it looks too small and then they receive it in the post and they say well in the picture it was too it was bigger or you know you have to also manage clients expectations and their buyers i remember in the throes of the pandemic, you made an order with Caro and I hand-delivered it, well, by car. And we had a distance doorstep chat. Um, I remember being heavily pregnant and you and I started chatting about your white ceramic collection. I obviously now realise that it was for that job that you you were collecting for. No, I've just always collected white, white ceramics. ceramics. Okay. Yeah, but there's quite people... The dangerous thing with any collection is if you tell somebody you're collecting, people give you... <laughs> Drop them off. Endless things. <laughs> and this happened a while back when I started collecting rolling pins. And I was collecting really interesting rolling pins. And then I kept being sent, like, sort of stripy blue and white ones for, you know... The, and I, or, or just, ugly, you know, ugly ones ugly that I didn't ones want in the collection. you wouldn't no, collect. No, But with the white ceramics, I guess... It's often a very particular white mm. or cream. I was going to say... Not too cream a, and not too white. Mm. Not a sort of china white. No, but also not like a stoneware cream. Mm. It has a, See, And it has to sort shade. of be quite simple or interesting in shape or, or they, not at all. They I don't mean, have to be the same white, but tonally yeah. the same. I have a sort of plan one day to have a, a wall with endless shelving of all my white ceramics. And oh if you God, wanted to... I just to, love the sound of that. When, you, when someone's in your kitchen saying, where are the bowls for the salad? <laughs> they would go to the shelf and they could pick any white bowl of any shape, height, width, yeah. thickness. You have to do... That's your installation. That, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Um, How many collections have you had? 
Do you know? Are you sort of start a collection and then six months later, oh, no, I'm bored of no, that one. The, the, yeah, the rolling pin has sort of turned into that and they're all quite dusty and stuck in a basket. The white ceramics, I think, will remain forever. Um, and even, I mean, for my wedding, I we got all John Julian, beautiful, plain. And, and, and a lot of people think, what is this ugly plain plate? But just the weight of it, the way it feels, the fact they're made two villages across from us, like... That is the, for me, the perfect ceramic. They are just, they've, he's got it spot on. What other collections? I've always wanted to collect miniature chairs, like little children's chairs, and have a really long corridor in my house where little chairs are all the way along this corridor. How does your husband feel about all your collections? Uh, really annoyed. I come back from a charity shop every other day with another jar for a spice or for a couscous or pasta or everything goes in a jar. It's almost like a form of therapy. If I'm feeling stressed or anxious, I will go into any of our kitchen cupboards and have to like check that everything is level in the jars or the jar needs filling up or do we need to buy more? Wow. And then it, I, I switch things. If there's too much for one jar, it gets poured into another jar. It's like a whole thing. thing. Yeah. <laughs> and then people come over for dinner and he gets really excited about the jars and he opens the cupboard and shows everybody the jars. And You'll be paying admission for yeah, you to come in soon. Yeah. And the amount of times I make him put holes in the walls, hang another plate, um, come back with another white china bowl, another, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of complaining, but he'll be grateful one day when... Does your sort of precise attitude fall over into what you wear? Yeah, I guess so. I Yeah, I, if I'm going on holiday, I plan each outfit for each day or make sure I bring the colours that all work to every... So that when you open your suitcase, it all looks... Yeah, and anything <laughs> could work with anything. So I oh, make good. sure well, that Well, that's all... practical. Yeah, that is practical. On that note, Camilla, thank you so much for spending an hour with me chatting. It's been an absolute joy. Thank you very much. So, how was that interview with Camilla for you? I loved it. I don't think I've ever met anyone like Camilla in Mm. such a good way. She's so focused. Yes, and it felt like that's been something that's been with her from such a young age, that conviction and trust in herself. Yeah, sense of self. Sense of self. That's the phrase. Yeah, really grounded in being so confident in knowing what she's doing and her her power of creativity and being like really behind her own ideas, which I just found, yeah, I just hearing her speak was so inspiring and just the way her brain works as I was saying to you that mixture of strategy creativity and discipline that she seemed to have from the beginning of her career yeah and how she had the confidence to express that at Mm -hmm. university for example there didn't seem to be any oh I'll try and fit into that mold that they're asking me to fit into it's no this is how I'm answering the brief Mm -hmm. and sort of deal with it in a way yeah yeah (laughs) really like okay with being different with being unique um and I don't know if she you know faced any challenges there but it sounded as though she chose a way to do things and the teacher sort of had to catch up with her which I thought was amazing there is a rigor to her work almost Mm. beyond her years yes you know I think that rigor comes with time and much more academic but she seemed to have that straight away deep need to learn and at a young age for her Mm. and I think like what's so interesting as well is those kind of people and the way she would have challenged her teachers and that course would have probably pushed her teachers along yeah and the course along as well to develop and that's why those sorts of people who are just so unique have such conviction of self from such a young age 
are trailblazers mm. and they can mm-hmm. change the course of how things work and mm. I have great respect and, and admiration for those sorts of people and I always wonder like you know how can we open up more space for more people to be like that you know in, in the confines of our traditional education and how it's so structured and yeah. you know she touched upon the tick boxing exercises yeah. that all schools have and made me think does that element help or hinder what does it add what does it take away mm. Um, I know and a person like herself if you're in the right environment that can be really nurtured mm. and it can be appreciated and then they can hone their craft because they've been nurtured but put put Camilla in another university where people didn't really care as much or maybe they weren't as open-minded mm. or it, it could have really affected her in a different way could have been marked down for example yes. and then not get anywhere or yeah. Um, so have you ever done art at college or university? I did. I really loved art A-level. And then I went on to do a foundation at Camberwell. And that was wow, like... Wow, I didn't know that. It was one of the best things I could have ever done. And actually, I think now that I've left the shop, I think about that a lot because mm. got to experiment and go into all these different industries a term in graphic design and then sculpture and fine art and then fashion and then I mean such a luxury and such an amazing course I loved it and I specialized in fine art I wasn't necessarily a skilled painter or sculptor it was incredible to be able to take my ideas and turn that into something creative so you could either do a painting or you could do an installation or you could Mm. use sound or you could do photography kind of thinking a lot about that now and trying to go back to that time of and it makes me think about what Camilla was saying around how she works with clients on shoots and she said that 50% of she says to the client up front please allow for the first half of this day to be for us to play for yeah. us to have fun, for us to like see what's working, what's not working, because if it's too rigorous, like we're just not going to get that creativity. And I think that can be applied to us as adults. Yeah, we don't play enough. We do not allow space for like experimentation. So, like you and I were talking, maybe we'll do a sculpture course together. Like, yeah, doesn't necessarily apply to either of our current jobs but what can that bring us like how can that enrich our lives in a way that we we can't see but it's so important to allow space for that and that was just when you were talking about what Camberwell gave you it sounded like it gave you that place to play mm. I loved her way of looking at her clients oh I loved that like this this way she categorizes how she works she just knows she again it comes back to this knowing who she is and the way she communicates that with her clients is astounding so what was it she has um, she knows that she is minimal and sophisticated. That's yeah. her style. Mm-hmm. So people come to her for minimal and sophisticated. And then she has the client and she gets under the bonnet of what the client does, why they do it, what their purpose is. And that gives the work the edge. So yeah. she has these three words that she covers and everything yeah. she does. And make sure that each project she gets involved in has those three yeah. markers, if you yeah. like. And I think one of my favorite parts, actually, which is when mm. she said, I gave myself three goals going to Japan and I said I wasn't going to be able to leave Japan (laughs) until (laughs) I achieved them and she was what 20 something 21 and I was wow that way of thinking at that age that is like such an inner drive and just again just in, in real inspiration yeah I found it interesting when clients come to her and they have a brief instantly she knows knows it 
on most people who spend weeks researching and thinking mm. through it. True creative, you know, natural born creative, where mm. it's just, I just, she just knows. She mm-hmm. knows, she sees something and immediately, however her mind thinks, she comes up with that concept instantly. Yeah. And, and she trusts that, which I think a lot of the time, if you are a true creative, the conditioning you can receive can mean that you're questioning that. Yeah. Whereas she seems to have always been able to trust that, which is, uh, again, I keep saying inspirational, but it really is. It's that, that, that piece of work that we can all do on ourselves is just to get more certain as to how we feel about something rather than looking outside for how someone else feels about something so just always getting coming back to questioning yourself rather than listening to another podcast or reading another book to yeah. try and get that information yes that we're all obsessed with doing but actually can we stop and go how do I feel about that like genuinely yeah and it's a lot of the time it's the act of play that will give you those answers oh, yes. more silence. than just reading reading on yeah, yeah. and silence. silence being with yourself yeah you know, not filling that with other information can give you that space to come to those answers that you've got within yeah but if we're constantly filling ourselves with noise and outside opinions it's very hard to actually be still enough or be light enough to play mm-hmm. um, we sort of become quite rigid and full of other information mm-hmm. yeah cool <laughs> <laughs> done done <laughs> What would you take from that interview as inspiration into your life? Because I felt, felt, felt like there was just so many wonderful messages from that. I almost want to play that episode to any 16-year-old potential artist or creative and just play that and show them that there's this way of being really confident in yourself. Yeah. Well, it just makes me want to start a collection. And I've always wanted a collection, but typical me, I've spent my life thinking, what shall I collect? And then I'm going to be gone and I never will have collected anything. All right, decide now. What are you going to collect? How about you? Have you got any collections? I don't. I'm actually like really not a collection type person. I'm quite, I'm not very attached to my belongings, I've realised. Yeah, Um, well, that's a good thing. Yeah. Well, you know. And also, I've only just moved into my first proper home, I think. So I think it will begin. Yeah. But what to collect? I collect- oh no, I did collect the whole of my childhood. Well, first of all, I did. I collected stamps. Yeah. Oh, that's it. I collected stickers. <laughs> stickers. But then I collected butterfly brooches specifically, and I've still got a massive bag full of butterfly brooches. Just any like beautiful brooch that was with a butterfly. a butterfly. Yeah. I collect cookbooks. Oh yeah, you've got a great collection. I'm looking at it and now. And actually, it's uncontrollable because I look at all these cookbooks which we're looking at right now, and I think I do not need any cookbooks. But then I'll, I'll come across one, and it's this need. And I do look through them all. Well, I was going to ask time. you have a because I what I find with my cookbooks is I won't look at them at all. Well, Nicholas will end up doing all the cooking. Yeah, <laughs> I just won't be looking at them. And then sometimes I just have like a my romance with them is reborn, and I'm suddenly like looking through my cookbooks again and putting the markers in. But it seems to come in waves for me. It's not a constant. How do you? engage with your cookbook I love having people over sometimes I think maybe I only have people over so that I can cook <laughs> and look through the cookbooks it's Give not actually about the the engagement or connection <laughs> with the people it's just I want to cook this food yeah well yeah have you cooked anything delicious recently no I've been I haven't been cooking much because I've been working a lot more and obviously my husband is a chef I know. lucky you. Um, and he tends to be at home on the on Monday and Tuesday nights and when he makes a family dinner, he will always make extra or something else. 
So he's sort of batch cooked for the week. Oh and it's, my God, that's the Honestly, dream. it's so helpful. But I do miss cooking and it and it will come back. But at the moment, I'm just leaning into being cared for. And yeah. it's like quite wonderful. I'm surprised because so, obviously he's cooking every day. Oh, he loves it. We went to my auntie's house yesterday and we were going to have a barbecue. And we got there and she was, so would you be up for barbecuing? And I was thinking, oh no, like he's just got back from work at 1am. He was so excited. <laughs> he loved it. Really? Yeah, and he, you know, he just absolutely adores cooking. And so he's in the right job. He definitely is. God, mm. that's amazing. Yeah. Well, I'll um, invite Nicholas over for a barbecue very soon then. <laughs> yeah, perfect. We'll see you there. <laughs> Thank you so much. I will see you next week. See you next week. Bam, bam, bam. Don't